we, we come to our 10th talk in the Bible survey, 2 Samuel, <clears throat> just a, a, a reminder of um, where we've come, uh, we're homing in, or the Bible at this point in Israel's history is homing in on the Messianic family, um, King David, obviously, um, <clears throat> and we've seen last time Israel wanting to go from a theocracy to having a king. Um, and so God has okayed this. It wasn't his plan A by any means, but the people wanted it. So the Lord said, okay, go for it. And um, we saw Saul become the first king. And um, he was rebellious and disobedient. And so the Lord took the kingdom away from him. And uh, David was uh, anointed as his successor. Um, to take over from him. And yet, far from immediately kind of taking his position as Israel's next king, we, we saw a principle that very much works in the lives of God's people. And it's the fact that, that David, if you like, having had a vision or a promise from God that he was going to be the king, um, for the next years, not only is that promise not immediately fulfilled, but the exact opposite happens, and that he was actually driven out of the very kingdom as an exile, the very kingdom that God had chosen to be king over. Because of the, the anger and the jealousy of Saul, David actually had to become an, an exile, an outlaw. And, uh, you know, so, so we were seeing very much that God prepares him for this position that he's called him to, through all the hardship and the humbling and all the problems and difficulties and tribulations of having been outlawed and rejected by the very nation that he was supposed to lead. <coughs> and um, we saw that last time it ended with the actual death of Saul. And <coughs> here in 2 Samuel, we, we come now to the actual reign of David as king, that his time of being an exile or an outlaw is now over and we move into the actual time in Israel's history where David actually becomes the king of Israel. And we're going to see that although uh, through much tribulation thus far he's been prepared uh, for the role that God has called him to, we're going to see that once he became king, it didn't mean that or, you know, everything in the garden was rosy by any means at all, because it wasn't. <clears throat> and uh, the, the date, for those of you who are interested, is now around 1000 BC. So that's, that's a handy way, you know, the log King David, the reign of King David, around 1000 BC. <clears throat> now, we saw last time um, that, that, that Saul had died in the battle with the Philistines. Um, it was the sin unto death. He eventually resorted to occultism, didn't he? And, and, and Samuel actually appeared um, out of the ground, you know, came up from the centre of the earth to actually pronounce uh, the sin unto death to Saul. And uh, we saw that Saul was wounded in the battle and um, not wanting the Philistines to be able to finish him off, he asked his armour-bearer to kill him. Now, his armour-bearer wouldn't do that, um, and so what Saul did is he committed suicide. I mean, he was already mortally, you know, you know, dead, as it were. You know, he knew he was dying, but, but in, in those days, obviously, you didn't want the enemy to get the chance to finish you off. So because his armour-bearer wouldn't actually kill him, Saul fell on his own sword and committed suicide. And then after that, the, the armour-bearer actually kills himself as well. Now, when we come to chapter 1 now, 2 Samuel, we... Um, 
we have um, the story of David hearing about the death of Saul and his sons. Now, David is in Ziklag at this point. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're carrying on virtually the end of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel picks up immediately where it's left off. So we're really talking about, you know, the next day, as it were, you know, immediately afterwards. And uh, David is in Ziklag. And he, he actually hears of Saul's death through an Amalekite who brings him Saul's crown as, as a proof, all right, that, um, that, his, his, you know, that he was actually there at Saul's death. But the Amalekite lies to King David. King David never actually found out the truth about Saul's death. This Amalekite lies to David. And what the Amalekite tells David is that when he came upon King Saul, he tells David that King Saul was still alive and that King Saul begged him to kill him. All right? And so this guy, he comes to David and he said, I came upon King Saul, he was dying, but he begged me to kill him, so I did. Now this was a lie, alright? The Amalekite obviously came across Saul because he had his crown, but Saul was long dead. But the Amalekite was lying to David, thinking that he would get rewarded from King David for having fulfilled Saul's last wish, which was to die. So therefore David Although he's hearing that Saul is dead, he's not actually hearing the truth because this Amalekite didn't kill Saul at all. But the Amalekite is telling David that he did because he thinks that King David will reward him and say, well, this was great because you kind of fulfilled the king's last wish, all right? Um, but of course, as is often the case with lying, and, and, and here it's very demonstrably the case that here is a lie told as the vast majority of lies are for self-gain, right? And a classic example here of it not paying because um, it didn't work out quite like this Amalekite was hoping it was going to. David believed him, certainly. King David was taken in by the lie, but simply concluded that this makes you the murderer of King Saul. Do you remember, David had opportunities to kill Saul, but would not take them, saying that he is the Lord's anointed, he is the king, and no way am I going to lift my finger against the king. And what David was doing, although he knew that the kingdom had been torn from Saul and given to him, David was going to let the Lord sort Saul out, he wasn't going to do it himself. And here's this Amalekite saying, I killed King Saul. And so therefore, David, now accusing him of being the murderer, of the king, has him executed on the spot. So it, 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 did, it didn't quite work out for that Amalekite the way he was uh, hoping. And then chapter 1 concludes with a lament that David takes up. Remember, David was a great poet, a great writer of songs and musician. Um, and this lament that he takes up for Saul, genuinely mourning his, his, his death. There's no bitterness. I mean, the fact that Paul hunted David for years, trying to kill him. There's no bitterness in David against Saul here. There's no rejoicing over Saul's downfall. No rejoicing over Saul's death. And there's a lot in Proverbs. If you read through Proverbs, there's a lot about this. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls. You know, it's not, that's, that's a form of, you know, okay, it's good that vengeance is God's. So if someone's doing you bad, don't fight back, 
love them, all right? Okay, don't fight back. Let the Lord sort them out. But if in the Lord sorting them out or something then evil happens to them, if you're kind of, oh, great, brilliant, they deserved it and more. I mean, that's, that's the very sin that, that, that we're commanded to avoid by loving those who are our foes. And, and there's a great example here in King David. He bore no malice towards Saul in any way at all. And he laments him, laments his passing. Obviously, he's fully aware that Saul was saved, but nevertheless, the tragedy of his death and also the death of Jonathan as well. And remember, we saw last time as well, that Saul and Jonathan were very, very close. They, they, they became, uh, sorry, that David and Jonathan became very, very close friends. And of course, Jonathan died as well because the sin unto death included most, albeit as we're gonna see, not all of Saul's sons. And uh, you know, so chapter one ends with this lament that David takes up for the death of Saul and Jonathan as well. Now, in, in chapter two, um, David now goes on to, to Hebron in Judah, which is the south, and he, he, he kind of, he settles there. Um, you know, so I mean, obviously he's been an exile, he's been an outlaw, so now he goes and, you know, kind of at this point, you know, makes his home in Hebron in Judah, which is the south of, of the land. And, um, and, and the people there anoint him as their king. So he's gone down south, and now, although years before Samuel had anointed him but but now his time to actually become king has happened and in the people anointing him um, there's the actual instatement now of, of, of David as the king but so, something happens now that sets the scene for events that um, are going to come very much to the fore in later years in Israel's history. And what it is, and, and, and it appears now a bit for the first time, but later on is going to become a major element in the history of Israel's national life. And that what happens is that a division now occurs between the north of Israel, the north of the Promised Land, and the south. Now, for geographical sort of... Um, reasons. The north is referred to from this point onward in the Bible as Israel. So the term Israel refers to the northern kingdom. And the south, the southern part of the land where David has settled, is referred to as Judah. All right. Israel, the north being the general term for the Jews. Uh, Judah in the south, because Judah was by, fine, you know, by far uh, the largest tribe, and you remember, you know, when we saw how the land was handed out, that Judah, you know, got the largest slice by far. So what we have is a national division now begins to occur between the north, Israel, and the south, Judah. And it happens like this, okay. Saul's nephew, all right, a military commander, was called Abner. Now, he's still alive, okay? So, this is Saul's... Well, sorry, at this point... Oh, oh dear, I, just, I mean, this is good storytelling. I'm making it so realistic, you think it's happening at this very moment outside. No, this is all hundreds and hundreds of years ago. No, Adna, all right, who was King Saul's cousin, sorry, nephew, don't confuse me, and his military commander, all right, now 
takes one of Saul's remaining sons, a bloke called Ishbosheth. So Saul, all right, one of his sons has outlived him, wasn't in the battle, wasn't killed, all right? Abner, his nephew and military commander, all right, now takes Ishbosheth, all right, Saul's son, and makes him king in competition with David. But in so doing, he only gets the support of the people in the north. So can you see what's happening? David has gone down to the south, and he's been made king over all of it, the whole land. He's Israel's king, but he's in the south. Abner puts up Ishbosheth, Saul's son, to try and continue that dynasty as a rival king. And what happens is, he gets support from the north. Now, can you see how the divide is happening? The north are, are kind of showing a loyalty to the dynasty of Saul, all right? Whereas the south is accepting of David being the king. Now, of course, God's, you know, God's will was that David was king, and we're going to see in later studies as we carry on through the years of Israel's history, that the south tended to be the goodies and the north tended to be the baddies. And here the south is going with God's choice, King David. But a rival king has been set up, Saul's son, in the north and is being supported by the northern kingdoms. Now, what happens now is civil war. Not particularly major, that will happen late, you know, in later years but you get a civil war. And what happens is that Abner's men, all right, Abner gets an army of the northern tribes who are supporting Ishbosheth as the king, all right, um, hits up against David's army, and there's a fight. David's army being led by a guy called Joab. Now, David's men beat Abner's men, all right? So King David wins out. I mean, you know, this, He's the goody, all right? Um, but Abner escapes, all right? So we've got Abner has taken Ishbeth, one of Paul's sons, tried to make him king, has got support in the north. He's got an army together. David's army fights him, and David's army wins. But Abner escapes, all right? But in so doing, he kills one of Joab's brothers, Joab being the commander of David's army. So Abner has escaped. All right? And he has killed one of Joab's brothers in the process. And this state of civil war carried on for a couple of years. Now, as we move into chapter 3, David's side, if you like, gets stronger and stronger. And Abner's side, the house of Saul and all the tribes supporting him, get weaker and weaker. Okay? So the point is, David is establishing his political power more and more, and the house of Saul, Ishbosheth as king in the north, is weakening all the while. Okay, so that's the way it's going. David is certainly increasing his power more and more. Now, we're, we're told at this point that David has six sons. Not all at once, but over a period of time, obviously. And just so you've got the names, because it's important that you've got them, a guy called Amnon, Kiliab, Absalom, now he's going to feature very much later on, Adonijah, Shephatiah, and Ithraim, all right? And 
He's got all these sons because he's also picked up another four wives, all right? Maacah, Haggith, Abitur, and Eglah, all right? So this chapter 3 just gives us these details about David's family life, you know, the development of his dynasty. Now, we now go back to the politics of the Northern Kingdom, all right? Remember, the South, supporting of David as king, is getting stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul in the north with Ishbosheth as king and Abner supporting him, all right, we go back up to the north, it's getting weaker and weaker, and there are some political developments up there. And the developments are basically that Abner and Ishbosheth fall out. They have an argument. So remember, they have been an alliance. It was Abner who made Ishbosheth king. And what happens is that Ishbosheth, as kings often do, gets paranoid and starts fearing that Abner wants to take over from him as king. And so there's, there's this big falling out. Now, Abner had no intention of doing that at all. Although Abner has backed the wrong horse and it wasn't God's will for Ishbosheth to be king, he nevertheless is a man of honour. He was doing what he thought was right, okay? And he wasn't trying to politically manoeuvre so that he could be king at all. So Abner now is wounded, you know, he's offended. You know, he's sort of like, you know, he, he, he was completely loyal to Ishbosheth, who, who, who is now accusing him virtually of being a traitor. And, uh, and he's, he's so mortally wounded, and it, it so causes him to completely reevaluate the situation that he's in, that he realises that he's back the wrong horse, and he now transfers his allegiance to King David realizing that what he'd done was wrong and he now shifts his allegiance so having set Ishbosheth up as king in the north as a rival to King David Abner now realizes that his loyalty ought to be given to David in the south and so that's what he does he swaps sides transferring his allegiance to King David now then David is very happy with this obviously all right but uses the occasion to write what he sees as being a wrong that's been done to him. And obviously Abner is saying, David, I want to become loyal to you. Because obviously there was a chance that David might have had him put to death or something like that. But Abner was prepared to take that risk. And, uh, you know, so, so he's coming to David saying, look, I want you to accept my allegiance to you. Now, David accepts his allegiance, but on one condition. And the condition is this. Do you remember that when um, David first came on the scene, due to him defeating Goliath, Saul had made an oath that anyone who did that, all right, would be able to marry his daughter. And David was supposed to have married Saul's daughter, Michal. But what happened, all right, because what Saul said is, if you go out and bring me the foreskins of a hundred Philistines, you can have her, hoping that David will get killed in the process. But David went out and came back with 200 Philistines foreskins. But what Saul did at the last minute is that he reneged on the deal and gave Michal, his daughter, to marriage to someone else, a guy called Paltiel. Now, Abner up in the north, and because of his influence in what remained of Saul's dynasty, he had the political power to do what David requested. And what David requested of him was this, 
bring Mikhail to me so I can marry her. Saul promised me her, and now I want her. And of course, in Abner's eyes, this marriage would have kind of helped bring a closeness between the north and the south, because it would have been a marriage from someone of the dynasty of Saul marrying King David, and it would have helped politically to heal the breach that had come in the civil war that was now obviously coming to an end. And, uh, and so David uses this occasion and says to Abner, bring her to me, arrange it, take, take her from her husband and bring her to me. And Abner does this, and, and there's a rather touching little thing that we're told, because although Michal loved David those years earlier, she, she was in love with him, all right? And, but she was robbed of him, because at the last moment Saul said, no, you're not going to marry him. And she was given to Paltiel, all right, instead. But in the meantime, she'd fallen in love with Paltiel, and they were happily married. And when she was taken, brought from the north where she was, down to the south, to marry David, Paltiel, her husband, follows her all the way in tears. And that's, that's a rather touching and a rather sad... Oh dear, I get Kleenex out now, oh dear. Um, you know, but, but, you know, sort of like, you know, thing that happened there, that's sad. And that will feature a little bit in, in, in something that happens a bit later with Mikau. However, you know, but the main point is that Mikau is now married to, brought to David, and he marries her as well. Now then, the next thing that happens is, remember, Abner has sworn his allegiance to King David, all right? But do you remember that in escaping from the main battle between his men and King David's men, do you remember that I said that he killed Joab's brother, all right? Joab now murders Abner. And this was very typical of Joab. Although Joab was David's commander-in-chief, Joab was not a very nice bloke. And so now Joab murders um, Abner, which was totally wrong because Abner killed his brother in the process of the battle. But now Abner, behind David's back, uh, sorry, uh, Joab, David, his king, having said, Abner, I accept your loyalty, and that now Joab murders Abner. And when he found out, King David condemned the murder, but he didn't actually punish Joab. And that was a mistake, because Joab ended up very much out of control. And David, for all his strengths, at times does show a bit of a blind spot with some of the people that he's close to. Um, you know, being, he, he, he would turn a blind eye to too much. And uh, he turned a blind eye really here to, to, to the murder of Abner by Joab. Right, now we move on to chapter 4, alright. So, so Abner has come down and joined King David in the south and for his trouble has been murdered by Joab for purely personal reasons, all right? Now, in chapter 4, meanwhile, back in the north, all right, Ishbosheth, do you remember, he was the one whom Abner made king, all right, in the north, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, all right, and fell out with Abner because he got paranoid, thinking that Abner wanted to be king in his place, all right? Well, Ishbosheth is now murdered by two of his own closest men, two guys called Rainer and Rechab, all right? And probably in the light of Abner having gone to David and saying, I want to be loyal to you, all right, uh, they've concluded that they've been backing the wrong horse as well. 
and that their loyalty to Ishbosheth hasn't isn't doing them any favours. They think this ship is sinking. All right, we're, we're on the wrong side. So they murder Ishbosheth. Having done that, off they go to David, thinking, well, this is great now because we've solved his problems in the north. All right, you know the rival king is dead. We've killed him, and uh, he's going to he's going to reward us. And so off they go, present themselves to King David, who duly has them executed as murderers, which they were. There's absolutely no need for Ishbosheth to be murdered at all. So, so Barna and Recab backed two horses, uh, two wrong horses on the same day there, didn't they? You know, because thinking, oh, David's going to reward us, but he didn't. He had them executed as murderers. So, uh, you know, something to learn there about uh, political manoeuvring, etu brute, and all that sort of stuff. Right, okay, now chapter five. The civil war is now ended, all right? Israel is back at um, peace, and David is now made king over the whole of Israel. So he now has the official backing of all the tribes. The length and breadth of the land has accepted that he is God's choice for their king. However, the, the seeds of the north-south divide, the kind of the Israel-Judah divide, those seeds are well and truly sown. And we're going to be back to that in later talks, certainly. But all is, at least on the surface, back to being peaceful. Right, we're now seven years into David's reign, all right? So, so those kind of, you know, these first five chapters have covered seven years. And um, into David's reign, which lasted 40 years in all. His actual reign over Israel lasted 40 years. Um, and, and he's now 37 years old. I give you these details because chapter 5 gave me these details, so I pass them on to you. Um, now, at this point, David conquers Jerusalem, which up until that time was uh, still under Canaanite control, um, actually by the, um, the Jebusites. They, they were the Canaanite nation who, who dwelt in, um, in Jerusalem. And um, so David attacks Jerusalem and he takes it and he holds it. And he, he makes that the capital of the nation. So as London is to England, now um, Jerusalem is to Israel. And it becomes known from that point on as the city of David. And um, Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, now, he wasn't a Canaanite. Tyre was to the north of Israel, like along the Mediterranean coast, all right? So, outside of the land, a Gentile nation. And um, Hiram, David was on good terms with him. They had peace treaties and stuff like that. And uh, Hiram was the king of Tyre. And um, famous for its wood, its cedars and stuff like that, and everything that you needed for building. And so, what he does is, is that he sends David, and this is just a gift, from one king to another, from the king of one nation to another nation. Uh, rather like, I think Norway gives us a Christmas tree in Trafalgar Square, doesn't it, every year? Well, what happens is now Hiram, the king of Tyre, gives David everything he needs to build this uh, incredible palace that, um, you know, that he built. So Hiram provides everything that he needed for that. And um, it was free, so David didn't have to hire him. <laughs> Oh, get it. Um, then you get another list of more sons that David had, but uh, we haven't got time to go into that now. And you get, he has a few, few skirmishes now with the Philistines, and you get details about these battles, and um, he, he, he wins, you know, sort of both times. So, you know, sort of King David is going, is going very well here. Now, in chapter 6, 
David has the Ark of the Covenant brought to Jerusalem. Up until now, do you remember it had been Abinadab's place? You should remember that. And now it's brought to Jerusalem. But in having it transported, King David makes a bad mistake. And, and, and these kind of mistakes, there's always a price to pay. Because it, he went against the word of God. He knew the word of God and he went against it. And um, the law of Moses prescribed that the ark had to be carried on the shoulders of priests. All right? David has the ark brought from Abinadab's place into Jerusalem, but he has it trans transported on a cart pulled by oxen. Now, he shouldn't have done this. It shouldn't have been on a cart being pulled by oxen. It should have been, uh, you'll remember, on a cart pulled by oxen was how the Philistines returned it to Israel. Do you remember, they had all the problem with their god Dagon falling over and all the boils and the sores and everything like that. That was how the Philistines returned it back to Israel. And now David has it transported on an oxen, a uh, cart pulled by oxen. Bad mistake. And uh, what's happened, you know, what happens is that one of the oxen, you know, stumbled and, and the cart is pulled down. So the cart is not stable. So one of the oxen falls and the cart, you know, kind of like is pulled down um, on one wheel. And, uh, and, and the ark wobbled. You know, it looked like it was in danger of falling off the, the cart. And uh, this, this bloke called Uzzah, who wasn't a Levite, and you remember that only the Levites and the priests were allowed to touch the ark, all right? This Uzzah went to steady it, because he thought it was going to fall off, and so he moved forward to steady the ark, <laughs> breaking the law of Moses, and uh, he, he, he was struck dead. See? <coughs> so, again, here is God saying, look, I didn't give you these instructions for fun. I gave them to you for a reason, and if you go against my word, there's, there's going to be a price to pay. Now, when this happened, David became so fearful, because this was like the halfway point, it was on its way from Abinadab's place to Jerusalem. This happened, you know, at some point along the journey. And this, this, this episode so filled David with, with fear that um, he, he, he daren't bring the ark into Jerusalem. He couldn't bring himself to complete the journey with the ark. And so he, he, he left it at a halfway point with a, Le, uh, a Levite called Obed-Edom, you know, a guy he knew near where the ark, you know, this incident had happened. And so David, he's so filled with fear, he said, I can't have the ark in Jerusalem, not if things like that are going to happen. He just bottles it completely, he says, leave it there, all right. Um, you know, and of course the point is, God's judgment, a discipline has fallen, and David, it, it kind of paralyzes David with fear. And, and, and he can't face having the ark in Jerusalem with him. But what happens is that over the next three months, because, you know, there's something really quite nice here, over the next three months, David sees how this guy, Obed-Edom, is so blessed by God for looking after the ark. And, um, and as a result of that, David's courage returns, and so he says, yeah, I will have the ark in Jerusalem, where it belongs. And so then it happens. And of course what you've got here, and I think we've all experienced it, I have, is there are times when the Lord's hand falls a little bit heavy on me. Only when I need it, but it does. And it can kind of, it can put the wind up you, can't it? In a way that you can actually become too taken up with that discipline and a bit fearful of the Lord in the wrong way. Hence David, I'm not having the ark anywhere near me, it can stay there. But then, 
he saw all the blessing in the place where the ark was. And then he realised, no, hang on a sec, no, the Lord wants to bless me. Discipline isn't what the Lord is mainly about in our lives. He wants to bless us. And so David's courage returns. And we need that sometimes, you know, that maybe God has dealt with us in a particular thing and we get a bit, ah, like that. And we get too taken up with the fact that God had to discipline us. We need then to get our minds back on the fact he doesn't just want to discipline us, he only disciplines us so he can go on after us to bless us. And then we need to have our courage return and to just see all the blessing and all the good things that the Lord just wants to shower us with. And so, you know, at this point, David says, no, okay, right, let's, let's complete the relocation, um, bring, bring the ark into Jerusalem. Only this time he did it properly with the Levites carrying it on their shoulders. Now, here's the other point. He learnt his lesson. And the only reason that the Lord ever disciplines us is so that we learn our lesson. So if we're being disobedient, and I mean, it is to our own disadvantage if we go against the Lord. I mean, was Israel ever blessed for disobeying the Lord? No way. Was it blessed for obeying the Lord? Oh, you bet it was blessed for obeying the Lord. So, I mean, at the end of the day, the Lord only disciplines us so that we can come into obedience, so that he can bless us all the more for being conformed to his word. So now the ark does return to Jerusalem and, um, you know, sort of like the Levites are carrying it on their shoulders as should have been the case from the start. And it was David's job as king to have ensured that the ark was being carried properly from the start. He didn't, so he paid the price. He's learnt the lesson. And now, as the ark is brought into Jerusalem, David dances before the Lord. And because he is just so full of joy that he boogies on down all the way through Jerusalem in front of the ark because he is so filled with the joy of the Lord that the ark is being restored. And I mean, it's like, and again, any time that we're disciplined by the Lord, it's because he wants to lead us back into joy. He doesn't want anything to end with disciplining us being, you know, like in the corner sulking, licking our wounds. No, the Lord wants us, you know, to be happy, to, you know, to be rejoicing. That's what he wants with us. And so this, this tells us something about King David, his freedom in the Lord and, and, and his willingness to display himself, even though he was king, to be dancing before the Lord and to show that he was the Lord's servant as well. And it's at this point that we come back to Michal, because remember, David had married her, so she's one of his wives, and what happens was that Michal now has a go at him. And she kind of like rebukes him and, and, and talks about the fact that in him dancing in such a way that he'd humiliated himself, himself in all the, you know, in the eyes of the maid servants and the servants, blah, blah, blah. So here we've got a very bitter, twisted woman and she was completely wrong in what she said. You know, it was completely wrong. And David was right in what he was doing. All right. So the point is, in effect, David, who is really exhibiting freedom, if you like, in worship and loyalty to the Lord. Satan is attacking through Michal. But the point is, we've got to bear in mind with Michal, alright? And there's a lesson to learn in regards to our dealings, not just with each other, but with other people as well. That Michal had once loved this man, David. But irrespective of her own feelings, she had been made a political pawn, first by her father, who wrenched her from David, whom she loved, and gave her to Paltiel, who she didn't love. Then, 
she finds herself taken from Paltiel, whom she now loves, and made a political pawn by King David, who she didn't love anymore. And she's become bitter. So she's very wrong, and it says that she had no more children from that day, which I don't find surprising, because how could have, how really could David have slept with her? Can you see, there was no relationship there whatsoever, so I mean, it wasn't surprising, you know, their relationship was, you know, purely political convenience. But I think that although often, you know, sometimes you, you know, hear sermons on, you know, sort of like Mikal and what she said to David, and Mikal is 100% the baddie and David is 100% the goodie. Now, whereas David was right to dance before the Lord, she was wrong to rebuke him for doing so, I think we need to take on board the fact that she had become a political victim and look what David, in conjunction with Saul, had done to her through the years. So I think it doesn't excuse the fact that she was bitter against David, but I think we can see there a basis to at least give her a bit of understanding and not necessarily make it so black and white as some people do, that Mikael was wrong and David was right. So just a little bit of, um, you know, the old, old compassion there, because you, you can't, can't beat a bit of compassion understanding every now and then, can you? Can you? Oh, fight, good, good. Good, just good, good to know that you're still there. Right, okay. <laughs> Chapter 7. And um, now that David is established in, in, in the land and he has a palace for himself, um, he wants to, to, to now build a temple for the Lord. Because, I mean, God is, is still living in the tabernacle, in the tent. And, uh, you know, but sort of David is Israel now, or a, a long way from living in tents. And, and so, you know, that David wants to, to, to build, um, a, you know, sort of like a, a house of bricks, a temple for the Lord. And um, a prophet called Nathan comes on the scene now, and uh, he, he tells David that this temple was going to be built by his son. So he said, it's good that it was in your heart to do it, but, but it's actually going to be built by your son. And what happens now is that God makes a covenant and tells David through this prophet Nathan, a covenant that his throne is going to be established forever. And of course, here's the point. King David is in the Messianic line, the Messianic family. Of course, the point is Messiah will continue the rule of David you know, throughout eternity. And so you've got here a kind of a, uh, a glimpse of the eventual theocratic rule of King Jesus in the thousand-year reign of Christ, when God will be Israel's king. Remember, God didn't ideally want David or Saul, didn't ideally want Israel to have kings because he was going to be their king. Well, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, God himself, Jesus, is going to be the king of Israel and the whole world from Jerusalem. So we see a glimpse there of, uh, you know, sort of David being a type of the Messiah. And, um, and at the end of chapter 7, you get David's prayer of thanksgiving and worship um, in regards to this covenant that God has made for him, uh, made with him. Now, chapter 8, uh, you get a list of um, David's military conquests. Um, and in fact, during his reign, he more than doubled the amount of land that Israel had. Remember, when Israel went into the land, they didn't take all of it by any means. I mean, all the tribes were beaten back by, you know, the Canaanites within their borders and that. And uh, what David does, he extends to the north and the south. 
and he doubles the amount of the promised land that Israel actually controls. And he subdued Edom, Moab, Ammon, the Philistines, and the Amalekites. All right? So David now, he goes and he busts these Canaanite <coughs> nations that up till now Israel has not been able to conquer and destroy properly. All right? And the Lord just gives David victory wherever he went. And in verse 15 we read this in chapter 8, David reigned over all Israel doing what was right and just for all his people. Now that is what leadership is about. David reigned over all Israel doing what was right and just for all his people. This is why David was a man after God's own heart. Because he put the welfare of others before himself. He had that selflessness in his heart that only the Lord can put in someone's heart. And then in chapter 8 you get a list of all his officials and uh, this is where we're told that Joab, the murderer, is, is officially the... Um, you know, sort of like the commander of, of his army. Now, in chapter 9, um, David inquires whether anyone of Saul's household still remains alive. For the reason, so that he can show him kindness for the sake of Jonathan. So what David is saying, if any of Saul's descendants are still around, then Tell me, I want to know who they are, so I can show them kindness for the sake of the relationship I had with Jonathan. And he discovers, um, in, in his search, that one of Jonathan's own sons had survived. Um, a guy called Mephibosheth, and he was a cripple. So David discovers that one of Jonathan's sons had survived, uh, a cripple called Mephibosheth. And um, he actually finds this out through one of his servants called Zeba. Now, what Paul does, Zeba, I being the servant of Meshibosheth, not, not David, so Zeba steps forward saying, you want to know if any of Saul's you know, sort of descendants are alive, well, I'm the servant of Mephibosheth, blah, blah, blah. So what David does is that he grants Mephibosheth all of Saul's lands. He gives them all back to him. And, uh, and he appoints Zeba to be the chief steward. Because in those days, if you had all the land, you know, loads of land, and you were a noble, and, you know, and that, you didn't, you didn't administer it yourself. I mean, that was done by someone else. And so Zeba uh, is appointed by David to be the chief steward and uh, to manage and farm all these estates with his sons, 15 of them, in fact. And Mephibosheth, moves into the royal household in Jerusalem and lives with David there. Now, chapter 10, um, Nahash, who was the king of Ammon, uh, was an enemy of Saul, but not of David. And he dies. And his son, Hanan, succeeds him. So David, who had been friendly with Nahash, this king who's died, uh, sends some of his men to pass on his commiserations to Hanan, his son. Um, you know, as a sign, you know, saying, look, I want the friendly relations that I had with your father. I want this to continue between you and me. So he sends a load of men with condolences to Hanan on the death of, of his, his father. But uh, Hanan's nobles, because kings, especially young kings, because Hanan was a new king now, and they had nobles who advised them. And uh, Hanan's nobles were paranoid and thought that David was sending these men to spy the land out so he could invade which David wasn't doing at all. But, um, you know, so, so, so 
you know, the advisors convince Hanan to, look, this is an attempt by David to come and take over your kingdom. So Hanan believes them, which is a bit of a stupid mistake. And so he has David's men humiliated by cutting off half their beards and taking some of their clothes off and sending them back with only half a beard and partially disrobed. And that was a real how to humiliate an Israeli soldier and sends them home. And uh, this, this, however, proved counterproductive because David got cross. <laughs> and so David now sends Joab with the army to sort these guys out and did invade them and did destroy them. He had no plans to do so at all. You know, this is what paranoia can do for you. You know, you can actually, you know, if, if you get paranoid, you can bring on the things that you fear by the way you act, if you act out of your fear. And, uh, you know, and so, so David sends Joab and the army in to sort the Ammonites out. Uh, at this point, the Arameans uh, form a coalition with the Ammonites against Israel, and, um, and Israel duly beats both of them, the Ammonite army and the Aramean army. And, um, you know, and David personally kills 40,000 of them, uh, along with Shobak, their commander. And the Bible says that for this reason, that was the last time the Arameans ever helped the Ammonites. And I'm not surprised, you know. So, so you know, sort of there. And all around, the nations were learning, you don't mess with King David. You know, you do not mess with King David. Right, chapter 11, we're ten years into his reign now. And uh, we, we come now to the, the, the famous but tragic story of uh, his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, Uriah. He, co he committed adultery with her after one look. And that's the danger of one look, and that's what David did. He saw Bathsheba once, and he said, I want her, and he committed adultery with her. She became pregnant, and uh, her husband, Uriah, was out fighting with the army. And uh, so David's got to, you know, try and get out of this. And so what he does is he has Uriah brought back from the battlefield on kind of special leave. Um, you know, the idea being that uh, if he's home on leave, he'll go home, sleep with Bathsheba, and then when it's realised she's pregnant, it'll just be assumed that it was his child. That, that's what David planned to do. But Uriah comes back, you know, uh, from the battlefield, but as a, a kind of a gesture of solidarity, solidarity with his comrades still on the battlefield, he wouldn't go home. You know, he said, look, you know, my comrades are dying on the battlefield, I'm here, there's no way I'm going to go home to my wife and get solace with her while my friends are dying on the battlefield. So he wouldn't go home and therefore wouldn't sleep with his wife. And, uh, you know, Sir David thought, oh crumbs, this is no good. So the next day, what he does is he gets uh, Uriah around to his place and gets him drunk. You know, like, boozes him up and thinks, if I get him drunk, then he's going to go home and sleep with Bathsheba, isn't he? But he wouldn't. He got drunk, but he wouldn't go home, you see. So David now has to resort to something a bit more drastic. And what he does is he sends Uriah back to the battlefield. Uh, incidentally, this is a battle against Ammon again. Uh, sends him back uh, with a note, um, a letter for him to give to Joab, which he duly does. Now, Uriah doesn't know what's in the letter that he hands to Joab. But what is in the letter that David has written to Joab is to have him put in a particularly vulnerable point of the battle lines, and when he's there, to pull all the other men back to guarantee his death. That is what was in the letter. And that is what happens. And, uh, you know, Joab does this, and he has him murdered on David's orders, you know, to cover up David's sin. And uh, so once Uriah is dead, uh, Joab sends a messenger to David informing him that the dirty deed had been done. 
and that after a time of mourning, because, you know, sort of like Bathsheba just was under the impression that her husband had just died in battle, so was, you know, everyone else was as well. After a time of mourning, Bathsheba was brought to David again and became his wife, um, and was, uh, you know, sort of like in process, you know, it uh, bore him a son, you know, because she was pregnant with his, his baby. And uh, the last verse of chapter 11 is, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And it certainly did. Now in chapter 12, the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David. And he comes to David with a story about um, this rich man who had loads of sheep and cattle. And uh, a friend of his turned up and he needed to feed him. And so what he did, he went to a poor man and this poor man had one ewe lamb and it meant so much to him that it was virtually like a daughter to him. And so the rich man went to this poor man, took that ewe lamb and had it killed and, you know, fed the bloke who turned up um, with that. And, um, you know, Nathan said, you know, so what do you think of that, David? Someone's done that. And David replied, the man who did this deserves to die. He says, bring him here so I can carry out justice. At which point Nathan replied, you are the man because that's exactly what David had done and David is given a real a rollicking here from Nathan absolutely rightly as well along the lines of hadn't the Lord given him enough without him having to have Uriah murdered as a result of having an affair with his wife David had everything any man could want and yet there he ends up lusting after an ordinary foot soldier's wife resulting in having an affair with her and then having the husband murdered and um but David is very quick to repent. He doesn't try and justify himself. He comes clean, completely clean, and repents. And as a result of that, the Lord tells him that his life was going to be spared, but that three judgments would come upon him. The first one would be that the sword would never depart from his house. The second one would be that calamity would come upon him out of his own household, his own family, and that one close to him would commit adultery with his wives in broad daylight. And we'll see the fulfilment of that later. And then number three, that his newborn son, through Bathsheba, would die. Now, for seven days, he prayed and fasted that his son wouldn't die, but the child did. And then he ended the fast, and he worshipped the Lord, and he resumed normal life, knowing that the Lord hadn't heard his prayer, and that, you know, there was no use praying. And when people said to him, well, look, while the child was ill, you were fasting and praying, but now the child's died, you know, you're kind of, uh, you know, sort of like you're eating again. And he said, look, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Because David knew that, that, that that child, that little baby, was with the Lord, you know, and that one day he'd join him in the eternal state. And, um, you know, so he just accepts that, that the child, you know, the child dies, it's right, okay, fine, let's, let's get on with life. And then later on, Bathsheba gives birth to Solomon. And uh, this is interesting, because the messianic line was continued through Solomon, but it was through Bathsheba, all the wives that David had. Now this is really is Romans 8, 28, isn't it? All things work together for good. A real example of how something that isn't God's will, if you do it and there's no way out of it, you can't change history, it becomes God's will. And that's, that, that's grace. And, uh, you know, so the messianic line actually carries on through Bathsheba's son, Solomon. And, um, and the Lord actually nicknamed Solomon Jedediah, which, which means loved by the Lord, you know, because the Lord had a special love for this boy, Solomon, who was going to be king after David. And, um, and then at the end of chapter 12, David uh, goes out with the army and finishes off the Ammonites, you know, who keep 
popping up and fighting him all over the place. Right, now in chapter 13 we have the beginning of this calamity that was prophesied through Nathan from his own household. And uh, what happens is that uh, David's eldest son, all right, bloke called Amon, fell in love with his half-sister, Tamar. So the point is, Amon and Tamar are Amon and Tamar are David's son and daughter, but through different wives. So they're half-brother and sister. And what happens, and, and Tamar was Absalom's full sister, all right? So we've got Amon, Tamar, and Absalom here. Now, what happens is that Amon kind of uh, falls in love and really fancies Tamar. And uh, what he does is that under the guise of him being ill in bed and wanting her to just come and comfort him and talk to him and hold his hand and that, he pulls her into bed with him and rapes her. This is his half-sister. And it says then that afterwards he hated her more than he'd loved her before he did it. And that, that will always be the story of immorality, because it destroys respect between people. And so he throws her out. And uh, basically he ruined her life because she was unmarriageable after this, because everyone would have known that she'd been raped by her half-brother. And so what she did is she went and lived with Absalom, Absalom being her full brother, i.e. they both had the same mother. And, uh, but Absalom waits for his chance to, to, to get even with Ammon. And he waited for two years, and then he had some friends of his kill Ammon. So he has his half-brother murdered for this rape. And uh, having done that, because he knew that King David would be after him, uh, he, he, he fled to Geshur, and he stayed there for three years. And, uh, but once David got over the death of Ammon, uh, Amnon, he, he was yearning then to see Absalom, because he hadn't seen Absalom for three years. So the situation that King David has got now is that one of his daughters has been raped by his eldest son, who was then murdered by one of his other sons. So this is really the beginning of real family problems, all right. Uh, calamity is indeed coming from his own house. Now in chapter 14, Joab uh, considers that David ought to have Absalom back in Jerusalem with him. And so he kind of manipulates <coughs> David into having Absalom returned with a royal pardon. And uh, the way he did it, he had a woman go to David uh, with a story that one of her sons had killed her other son, um, but that she wanted the guilty son pardoned so that her family could go on. And King David said, well, in the light of this, for the larger good of the continuation of your family, yes, I grant that royal pardon. And, uh, and then he realised, all right, that this was, was kind of Joab manipulating him into granting a royal pardon to Absalom, which he, he duly does. And, um, and so Absalom now comes back to Jerusalem, but uh, David wouldn't actually see him. So Absalom, after three years of exile, is back in Jerusalem, but King David won't actually see him. And uh, two years later, Absalom is really angry that his dad won't see him. And, um, you know, sort of, so he kind of wants Joab to intercede for him a bit more. And so he calls Joab, and Joab repeatedly ignores his request to see him. So what Absalom does then is that uh, he sends some friends of his out, and he sets fire to one of Joab's fields 
just to get his attention, which he duly does. And so, you know, Joab now goes and sees him because he knows that he's going to get all this property burnt to the ground systematically until he goes to see Absalom because this is the sort of person Absalom was. And, uh, you know, so he, he, you know, he goes to see Absalom. Uh, uh, Absalom, he agrees, he goes to see David and there's a, a full royal pardon and they're all kind of, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, restored to each other. And then in chapter six, uh, 15, we're told that over the next four years, Absalom worms his way into people's favour in Jerusalem and uh, woos them into the idea of backing him if he deposes his father as king. So now he starts working on a, a coup against his own father. And... Um, and he vanishes, leading his dad to believe that he was returning to Gesher to fulfil a vow that he had made. Um, whereas, in actual fact, he went to Hebron to organise this military coup. And he sent messengers out to all the tribes, you know, so there's real intrigue going on here, getting a big army together, all the people who are on his side. And, uh, and he's joined there by a bloke called Ahithopal. Now, Ahithopal was Bathsheba's grandfather, and he was David's personal advisor. Now, King David thought that he was loyal to him, good friend. But as it turns out, Ahithopel is prepared to go in with, with um, Absalom in this coup against David. And so this conspiracy has been very well planned over a period of four years. And uh, by the time David finds out that his son Absalom has got an army and is going to march against him, uh, he, he, at that point, has no choice but to flee. And so that's what he does. And uh, tactically, it was the only choice he had. If he'd have been in Jerusalem when this rebel army came, he could have been killed. And so he, he knows that, um, that he has to flee Jerusalem. So once more, King David is in exile, and it's because of his own son now. And uh, he leaves his ten concubines to tend the palace. Now, in the ancient world, we saw this in an earlier talk, concubines were virtually wives. They had the same status, all right? And um, so David leaves ten, uh, his ten concubines to tend the palace. And uh, the priests who follow David out of Jerusalem, they bring the ark as well, but David decides to send it back, that it's best not to be carrying that around with him. And uh, he also, at this point, all the people who have left Jerusalem loyal to him and his army, he gives them leave to transfer their allegiance to Absalom if that's what they thought the right thing to do was. Because, I mean, obviously he didn't want people fighting for him who might at any moment transfer their allegiance. And it's at this point that he finds out that Ahithopel is actually advising Absalom. And that, that really hurts David, because this guy was a close friend. So his close friend and his son are conspiring against him in a military coup. So what he does is he prays that God will turn Ahithopel's counsel to Absalom into foolishness. So he prays that God will kind of like twist up the lines of communication in the enemy camp. He then sends another of his advisors, a guy called Hushai, to be his spy. He says, look, go and go and transfer your allegiance to Absalom so that Absalom thinks you've changed sides, but be my spy. So that's what this guy, uh, Hushi, now does. And he's instructed that if he finds anything out at all, to get word to David through Ahimath and Jonathan, who are the sons of the high priests, Zadok and Abiathar, all right? And they were about to go back to Jerusalem with the ark, okay? So 
Hushai arrives in Jerusalem just as Absalom rode in. And because the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, are going back as well with their sons Ahimaz and Jonathan, and because they all know that Hushai is a spy for David, the espionage network is set up. David has got his lines of communication into the enemy camp. Now, in chapter 16, David is, is, is now found out by Zeba. Do you remember Zeba and Meshpah? and Mephibosheth, and Zeba informs him that Mephibosheth is in the conspiracy too. And so he says, okay, Zeba, you have all his lands, right? I give them all to you, all right? And uh, then he's taunted by a guy called Shimei, who's another of the relatives of, of Saul. And Shimei actually throws stones at him and stuff like that, and taunted him that his kingdom was passing to Absalom. And uh, Abishai, uh, who was Joab's brother and marching with David at the time, wants to cut Shimei's head off, but David wouldn't. He said, no, look, vengeance is the Lord's. Just keep trusting the Lord and, you know, we'll see what the Lord's going to do. And meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Hushai has sort of successfully got himself accepted by Absalom. So he, he's David's spy, but Absalom is taken in by him, all right? So what happens now is that Ahithophel advises Absalom to have sex with David's concubines, because this would be an, an open declaration that Absalom was claiming the kingdom for himself, okay? And so that is what he does, you know, very publicly he has sex with all of David's concubines, and that fulfills the prophecy that Nathan you know, sort of gave to David after his sin with Bathsheba. So can you see the poetic justice there? You know, the punishment fits the crime. But there's someone close to him, it is his own son. You know, so we're seeing this tragedy that's coming on King David because of his sin with Bathsheba. Okay, right, now chapter 17, Ahithophel continues advising Absalom on his military strategy. And he advises him that the best thing to do would be for him to get his army together and pursue David while he still had the element of surprise. David would be weak, he'd be weary. So he's saying, look, pursue him now and kill him before he's really got a chance to get himself together. Now, that was good advice. That was what Absalom should have done. That would have secured the kingdom for him. But remember, David had prayed that God would screw up the communication between Ahithophel and um, Absalom. And so what happens is that Absalom thinks, no, that's foolish advice. It wasn't, it was really good advice, but God made Absalom think it was foolish. And so what happens is that Hushai advises him, no, 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 stay in Jerusalem, dig in, build your army up a bit more, and then go after King David later. Now, that was the worst thing that Absalom could have done, but he thought, yeah, that's the best advice. So he follows the advice of Hushai, who was, of course, David's spy, all right? So Hushai passes all this information to Zadok and Abiathar, all right, the priests, who then dispatch their sons, Jonathan and Ahimaz, to inform David of what's going on. So David has got the total advantage, because he knows what Absalom's doing, but Absalom hasn't got a clue what David is doing, all right? And, um, you know, so off, off go Jonathan and Ahimaz to take the news to King David. But in the process, their presence in Jerusalem is found out, and, uh, you know, Absalom sends men to hunt them down. And it's only because a very brave husband and wife, uh, you know, whose names were not given, hide them, um, you know, sort of like, you know, in a well and sprinkle it with grain so, it, you know, it looks like it's not there. They, 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 you know, sort of like hide them so that 
um, Absalom's men can't find them. And eventually, you know, they got to David and delivered all the info. So David, uh, I mean, he's got it in the bag because he knows everything Absalom's doing. Absalom doesn't know David's tactics at all. And at this point, Ahithophel commits suicide. So David positions his army. This is weeks later now. David's army fully prepared. They know exactly where Absalom's going to march to and they, they, they just arrange a massive ambush, all right? And, um, you know, so they just sit and wait for Absalom to appear. In chapter 18, Absalom appears, um, but David's men won't let him fight in it. They say, no, we don't want you hurt or anything like that. And, uh, and David just says, look, can you be gentle with Absalom? Which was a bit of a useless request, because, I mean, obviously Absalom, you know, sort of like had to be dealt with. I mean, he was leading a, a military coup. And so basically the battle was over pretty quickly. Um, Absalom's army was defeated uh, quite fast by David's men. And what happened was that Absalom, trying to escape, he was riding a mule, uh, he rode under a tree on this mule, and the tree had a low branch, and his head got stuck in the branches, and he was just dangling there. And um, Joab, the leader of David's army, is taken to him and uh, plunges three spears into his chest. And then ten of his Joab's armour bearers finish him off. So Absalom came to a pretty nasty end there. And uh, they, they, they buried him in a pit and, uh, you know, in the forest under a load of rocks. So give him, you know, really undignified ending. And... Um, David receives news that the coup is over, that he's got victory, that the kingdom is safe again. But of course he goes into great mourning over Absalom's death because the leader of this coup was his own son. His own son has been killed. And, you know, so whereas it's victory, David's kingdom is safe, it was at the cost of his own son's life, his own son being the, uh, you know, the one who was trying to take the crown from him. And then in chapter 19, David, he's mourning for the death of Absalom, obviously, but forgetting that Absalom was the foe, he's so taken up with the death of Absalom that he, he pays no attention to the fighting men whose bravery has, has kind of um, ensured that his kingdom would continue. And so Joab rebukes him. You know, says, look, you know, you've got to stop all this mourning for your son. Mourning for your son is one thing, and you've got to do it, but you can't humiliate your army by not talking to them or anything like that. It was their bravery that saved you. And, um, you know, and so David kind of, you know, like, gets his act a bit more together, and, and, and he goes and he addresses the army, which was right and proper, because they fought for him, they risked their lives for him, and so he kind of like builds up the morale of his men again. And, uh, and, and then he's received back as king by all of Israel. You know, the whole nation again is united, because again, it's been obviously civil war, a coup d'etat. And, um, and what he does, and this is David all over, in order to cement the unity between the warring, you know, sort of like factions. What he does is that he replaces Joab as the commander of his army with Amasa. Now Amasa was the captain of Absalom's army. So Amasa was the leader of the army in Absalom's coup. He was still alive. And David said, I'm going to make you the leader of my army in, um, in Joab's place because this politically will help to you know, to kind of bond us all together again. So here we see David really being reconciliatory. He wasn't a man for revenge at all. Reconciliation and oneness was what he was after all the time. Then Shimei, do you remember Shimei taunted and threw stones at him? 
comes to him to apologise. Wise move. And David forgives him. Uh, Abishai wanted to chop his head off before, wants to chop his head off now. <laughs> but David said no, you know, because David was not a man of vengeance. He was a man of forgiveness. Now, Mephibosheth now turns up. Do you remember Zeba told David that Mephibosheth was in the coup as well? Well, Mephibosheth now turns up and says, David, I wasn't. Zeba was lying. So, so David, because he's got no way to establish one way or the other who was lying, who was telling the truth. Remember, um, Mephibosheth had all Saul's lands. Zeba was managing them. Then David had given them all to Zeba, thinking that Mephibosheth had been against him. Now Mephibosheth is saying, no, I wasn't against you, Zeba was lying. So David said, look, have half each. And that's what he did, have half each. I don't know who's lying, I don't know who's telling the truth, just have half each, because he had no way of verifying um, or corroborating what the truth was. So the states of Saul are now divided equally between Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, and his servant and manager, Zeba. Okay. And, uh, and then what happens at this point, the old north-south arguments break out again, and there's a kind, there are arguments over whether the north or south was the most loyal to David. It just appears. It didn't lead to any war or anything like that, but again, this north-south divide just appears. The, the north and the south, they're like cat and dog, always, you know, waiting to go at each other. And as, as we carry on, you know, through the Bible survey, you'll see the, the kind of a head that that eventually comes to. Then, um, in chapter 20, uh, there's always someone to capitalise on what's been happening. And another troublemaker called Sheba, decides to carry on where Absalom left off. And, uh, and he wins the loyalty of the north, Israel. And he sets himself up as a king <laughs> against David. And uh, the north goes with him, and the south remains faithful to David. So David dispatches his army to put down this rebellion of this bloke, Sheba. And, um, but the first thing that happens is that Joab finds Amasa. Do you remember Amasa, who replaced Joab, captain of the army? Joab murders Amasa. All right? This is Joab all over. But at least Joab is now back being the commander of David's army again. All right? So he's got his job back because he's killed Amasa. All right? And he traces Sheba, this new rebel in the north who's proclaimed himself king and carrying on Rabsalom left off. He traces Sheba to a place called Abel Beth Makkah. And so the army lays siege to this town. And, uh, but what the inhabitants decide to do, so I think, no, we don't want to mess with Joab and the army of David. So what they do is they kill Sheba. They say, that we'll do it for you. How's that? You know, we'll, we'll kill him. <laughs> and, you know, so, I mean, the army goes back to David. So a very mini coup there that was really nothing, neither here nor there. And it's, it's, it's all over fairly quickly. So, so now the, the army goes back to David in Jerusalem. But just notice again, Joab, the moment someone crosses Joab, all right, he murders them. I'm not a very nice bloke, you know. But again, can you see David's blind spot on some of his personnel? Um, can you see problem? You know, we've got to really ask ourselves: Did David really give his sons the attention and the discipline and that they needed when they were younger? We've seen that you know one son raped his daughter. All right, you know. So 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 David's eldest son had raped one of David's daughters. Um, Absalom had murdered him. Absalom had tried to murder his... Can you see this? That hopeless, this family, the, the absolute, you know, oh, the shambles of it. And again, we see David's blind spot. He was 
there were so many wonderful qualities. He really was a man after God's own heart. God had worked holiness into him. He was like the Lord in so many ways. And yet there were these blind spots, these weak areas. And clearly, one of the great weaknesses in him was that he, he obviously, there were times when he went for a quiet life and turned a blind eye to things that were going on and, 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 and paid the price for so doing it. Now, with the end of chapter 20 there, we also have the end of the chronology of 2 Samuel, alright? So, the chronological order now ends and is interrupted, and the, the last few chapters are kind of miscellaneous. They're, they're just bits and pieces from preceding history, blah, 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 okay? So, so the chronology ends, and now we've we've just got the final chapters are miscellaneous, all right? And uh, in, in chapter 1, uh, sorry, in chapter 21, we're told of um, a three-year famine, all right, that comes on Israel. And uh, David seeks the Lord to find out why this famine had come on the nation. And the Lord shows him that it was uh, because of something that Saul had done. It was a massacre. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us anything about it but a massacre that Saul carried out against the Gibeonites. Now, if you'll remember, Joshua was fooled by the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites fooled Joshua into thinking they weren't Canaanites, and Joshua made a treaty of peace with them. And uh, Saul had gone against this treaty, apparently, and massacred quite a few of them. And so this um, you know, kind of famine had come on Israel for three years in the time of David, so that David's attention could be drawn to this injustice against the Gibeonites and it could be set to rights. And, uh, and so David asks the remaining Gibeonites what they would accept as amends for the crime carried out against them by the Israeli army under the leadership of Saul. And what they do is they request the death of seven of Saul's male heirs. And so what happens is that, you know, David then finds out yet another seven of Saul's male descendants who survived, and uh, they are put to death to atone for this crime against the Gibeonites. And um, David has the bones of Saul and Jonathan buried in uh, the tomb of Saul's father, Kish, and uh, so you get that story. And this again, you see David's loyalty to Saul, you know. Um, then you get details of various battles with the Philistines, blah, blah, blah. Uh, chapter 22, which I was going to read because it's a goodie, but we haven't got time, uh, was, was a song, a song of praise. A song of praise that David wrote and is recorded in chapter 22. It's also recorded in Psalms because it's Psalm 18. And, um, but we haven't got time to read it, so that's chapter 22. Uh, in chapter 23, you get King David's last words before he dies. Now, we're well out of chronological order here, because in fact, his death is recorded in 1 Kings, which is the next book we're moving on to, but, but, but now we're out of chronological order and that. And um, let's, 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 just, um, let's just actually look at that, his last words. Um, hang on. Uh, what were his last words? These are the last words of David. Oh, sorry, there's too many... There's lots of words there. No, we haven't got time to read it. But you get David's last, his deathbed, praising and singing and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Um, and then you get a list of his mighty men and their exploits. Um, you know, the various captains of the army who are loyal to him. Um, and if you, if you read through that, verse 13 to 17, uh, it, 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 it will tell you something of 
the reason that David was able to command such loyalty from his men, and he was. He commanded great loyalty from his men because of all the good qualities about him. You know, that he was very much all for one and one for all. He was, he was very plebby. He wasn't like up there on high and all you lot of plebs. He was one of the plebs as well. And he commanded great loyalty and he was very forgiving, as we've already seen. And so just, you know, read verse 13 and 17 sometime. It will tell you something of why it was that people were able to give their loyalty to him in such an unreserved way. And then chapter 24, last chapter, uh, you get a, a story from early on in his reign. And it was when he quite wrongly, and for reasons of pride, was all it was, took a census of, of Israel and Judah. Now, in other circumstances, all right, a census was right and good and proper because God led for it to be done. But here, it wasn't. David did it out of pride, all right. And, um, you know, it was completely wrong. And he repented of it when the Lord showed him he was wrong. And he showed him through the prophet Gad. Do you remember we saw Gad la last time? And, um, and... Through the prophet Gad, God gives him three options. He says, look, you know, because of this thing that you've done, having this sentence, uh, having this um, census, obviously I've got, to, I've got to discipline with you, so you've got three options. This is kind of, you know, sort of here, pick a judgment. No, don't show me. <laughs> don't show me what it is, put it back in the pack. But it's kind of, pick a judgment, okay? And his choice was basically this. Three years of famine, choice number one, or... Three months of defeat by enemies, choice number two, or choice number three, three days of plague. So that was the choice. Because of doing this census out of pride, he could have either three years of famine, or three months of defeat by enemies, or three days of plague. Now what he did is he chose the three days of plague. And the reason that he chose it was because he didn't want to fall into the hands of men. You know, he certainly didn't want to be defeated, uh, you know, by his foes. But he didn't want to fall into the hand of men. He wanted to fall into the hand of the Lord because the Lord is merciful. That was his thinking. So he thinks, if I have the plague, that is being directly inflicted by God. And who knows, he might be merciful. Now, the plague started and people died. But what happened was, um, he built an altar on the threshing floor of a bloke called Arunar. And David built the altar there to the Lord. And as soon as he did, as soon as he did that, the Lord had mercy and the plague stopped. And so David was wise to have uh, gone for that. And, uh, and once Aruna, you know, you know, when David said, look, I want to buy your threshing floor because I want to build an altar, Aruna tried to give it to him. Bless his heart. That was Aruna being a very giving person. But David said, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to. Uh, I'm going to pay you the full price. Uh, you know, for the simple reason, this was my, my sin has brought this on, and I'm not, going to, I'm not going to atone for my sin at your expense. And again, can you see that that was the kind of bloke, you know, that, that David was. Actually, go back to chapter 23, all right? We have got time. I'm just going to read from verse 13 to 17. Just this, um, this bit about how David commanded loyalty. During harvest time, three of the thirty chief men came to David at the cave of Adullam, while the band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Do you remember, it's still at the, uh, way back at the beginning 
of his uh, time here in the cave of Adullam. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone will get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. Far be it from me to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives and David would not drink it? And that was the kind of bloke David was, so very aware of the preciousness of the lives of the people who surrounded him. Okay, right, that's basically the reign of David. Next time we're going to see his death and move on to the reign of uh, his son Solomon and then uh, see the uh, history of Israel from that point on where the, south, where the north-south divide really happens and with a vengeance. So we'll carry on next time. <laughs>